0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This was going to be a timely interview, and then it got more timely, and that occurred last night. Laura Brown is with us. Her study at the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington is on presidential, let's call it discourse. The book describes it all. Amateur hour, presidential character and the question of leadership. Laura, I was watching the show last night and I thought of you. You've got to be kidding me. Were you taking notes during the president's uh, press conference, I guess I'd call it?
1: I will tell you I was having many heart attacks about every two seconds. Um, His speech, which was just full of bald-faced lies, uh, was so frustrating and disheartening for anyone who believes in the sacredness of the vote and the process of democracy. Um, It was stunning to me to watch a president from the White House claiming that there was widespread fraud.
0: I look, Laura, at the history of this, and I'm going to go to late Andrew Jackson, where he really fell apart, and the great Roger Remini of Illinois in his three volumes on Jackson. I don't know if we're going to get three volumes on Trump, but is it a continuum? Has there been a deterioration, or is it just a moment for this unique president?
1: So one of the things that I argue in my book is that the more we elect outsiders, individuals who have no relationship to politics or really knowledge of our legal system, um, then what you are going to see is people who have no kind of internal commitments to upholding the norms of democratic politics. And what that means is that for them, everything is fair game and there's no such thing as a below the belt hit. And I think that's what we're seeing. And we've seen it progressively over the last 30 years, um, 40 years. But I don't think um, that anything kind of compares to this moment and what we've seen with President Trump.
2: Laura, this country, though, does have a long history of non-politicians becoming president, whether it's Ronald Reagan or some of the founding fathers who had other disciplines as well. And that is the reason why Donald Trump has the support that he has. Some of his arguments, is there any validity in some of his complaints, as you see it, uh, that could be mixed in with other things that you take issue with?
1: So let me take issue first with your question. That's actually not accurate. Every president who has come before Donald Trump has had some level of political experience or a a law degree. I mean, they, in fact, were lawyers. Um, So or they had military experience. So it is true that every single one of our presidents before had some level of governmental, military or legal service. They were not, um, you know, complete outsiders like President Trump, who is a businessman who really had no Um, elective office experience or experience inside a party. So I just want to take issue with that. The second thing is certainly in our system, anyone who has legitimate valid claims can bring those in a court and the court can decide whether or not they have standing and those claims should be remedied. But what we have seen so far is none of that. We have seen, in fact, Um, baseless allegations that are not even followed up by lawsuits. So it is the case that what we have is a rhetorical um, action on behalf of the president, which really amounts to demagoguery.
3: Laura, you make an interesting argument here that I'd like to explore just for a moment, if you will. Are you saying that anyone who doesn't have political or legal experience should exclude them from becoming the president?
1: No, but what I am saying is that... You know, you would not fly a plane if you've never been a pilot. And I think one of the things that is important to realize is that you shouldn't learn to drive kind of in politics um, at the level of the presidency. We need fresh blood and outsiders and people from all walks of life to be involved in politics. But for goodness sakes, start at the city council, start, um, you know, at the mayoral office, start in the House Lara,
3: that's that's not for you to say, is it? That's that's for people to vote. You know, if you want to become a pilot, you have to get a license. There are legal requirements to become a pilot. But to become the president of the United States, you need to be born in America. And it's up for people to vote for you.
1: You're absolutely right. But in politics, it is the only profession in which we think no experience is good experience. And I think that that has had a detrimental effect on our system over time, because it is actually just a myth that the framers were farmers. They were not. Thomas Jefferson, in fact, had the most elective office experience of any president who has ever served prior to his term in office.
3: Laura, we appreciate your perspective this morning. Thank you. Laura Brown there, associate professor and director of the Graduate School of Political Management of the George Washington University.
0: Jeffrey Rosenberg with us now, BlackRock Portfolio Manager. ...of their systematic multi-strategy fund. Jeffrey, good morning uh, to you. The bond market and its dynamics, and I must point out that uh, Mr. Rosenberg is truly expert at the mathematics and the rates of changes within the mix of fixed income. Jeff Rosenberg, can you glean from the bond market what the bet is on stimulus?
4: You know, not really. In terms of, I think you're talking about, you know, the debate about fiscal stimulus in a lame duck session. Tom, is that the uh, focus? Yeah, I asking? mean, like that
0: of the how much of it, just the the crazy position that we're in right now. You know, you're so good, Jeff, at the rates of change of spreads and all that. Can you glean
4: a policy response out of it? I wouldn't I wouldn't go that far, Tom. I think what you're seeing here is a good report from the labor market reminding us that there is labor market healing going on. And post-election, you had cleaned up a lot of the crowded positioning around the bear steepening from fiscal policy. So you're coming into today's report. With a lot of positioning that is more neutral with respect to longer term growth, inflation expectations, post the big flattening that we saw after the election and we priced out the blue wave. Now, I think what you're seeing here is not so much about a a bond market view towards stimulus, but simply that the stimulus is naturally occurring as the labor markets heal. It's a pretty strong report, strong vote of confidence Pun intended there. Hopefully, you caught that. We uh, caught that. Around... Thank Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, carry on, Carry resist. on, Jeff. Uh, but but really uh, uh, about uh, about the strengthening in the in the real economy. Now that's going to be challenged again as we as we turn our attentions away from the election back to the virus and what it does to then clamp down again. This is a little bit backward looking, right? This is last month. And when we look forward, there's still some some challenges. But there is the recovery in the labor market that should be better for growth and inflation. So you're seeing a little bit of the steepening here today in the bond market.
2: Jeff, yesterday, Fed Chair Jay Powell came out and he said that the labor market uh, recovery is halfway done at best. He also reiterated his view that monetary stimulus has been supportive for the economy and will continue to do so. They are discussing possibly adjusting some of their bond purchases, asset purchases to further support the economy. The question I have is, what are they looking at that we're not seeing? Because this report indicates a labor market recovery that's really on course.
4: Yeah, well, I, I think they're looking at the cumulative losses and, and looking at the totality of the damage. It was a very significant Damage that has been done. And we've had a lot of recovery, but we haven't had the complete recovery. And remember, what the Fed is looking for is to get the labor market back to where it was before, to run the economy hot, to let the gains from uh, 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 a strong labor market spread throughout the economy. These are all the goals. So they're going to hold this highly accommodative. And really, the debate is not holding the highly accommodative stance, but rather when do they ramp it up even more in face of what was going on in Europe? A lot of questions about that. How will accommodation, what are your further tools for providing even more accommodation? So all that focus on the character of the purchase program, its composition, its size, its timing, that's what we'll look for. Obviously didn't get that yesterday, uh, you know, we'll look for it whether it's in December or in the in the new year. Yeah. And that's really what the Fed has left in the toolbox to address the needs for further accommodation, you know, as we get through the fear of this, you know, winter surge in the virus.
2: Well, yesterday, Frederick Michigan came on our show, a former Fed governor, and he said he doesn't think the Fed has any more tools left to support the economy. It does seem like the market is betting that the Federal Reserve will be able to at least stimulate asset prices further uh, with junk bond yields falling to the lowest since 2014, but not necessarily edify this economy. Do you agree with that view, the idea that you can go into riskier debt with the idea that the Fed will backstop you even if the economy continues to be sluggish and fails to recover on pace? Well,
4: what the what the credit market interventions are really about is the ability of the Fed to use its lending facilities to extend a credit cycle, to postpone the impact of cash flow disruptions from COVID. And that's been a very successful program to bringing back financial market functioning, which is exactly the the point of those policies. So I think there's a lot of room for the Fed to extend that, to support financial market functioning, to dampen credit market volatility and provide that lubricant for more credit functioning, but the Fed can't fix the fundamental issues of COVID and its disruption in the economy, and most importantly, its disruption to business models. You know, Powell said another thing, you know, taking out a loan, this is more in the Main Street lending facility, but it applies to the large companies as well. Taking out a loan that you can't afford isn't necessarily going to be a solution. For large companies, it is a solution to postpone, to buy them time. And financial markets like that because the longer you defer, you delay, you postpone incidents of default, you're earning coupons because you're using that borrowing to pay the current interest. Mm -hmm. And so you can kind of kick the can down the road here for a long time. But there is still a reckoning for business models that don't work in a post-COVID economy. They're going to need a restructuring.
0: Jeff Rosenberg, in this chaos – how do you be systematic if you change that word at blackrock how do you affect systematic
4: yeah well it, it, systematic it has a lot of different applications but one of the key applications to being a systematic investor is is not relying on very concentrated positions. You know, a really good example is not relying on the ability to forecast the outlook for the election. Again, we're fooled by pollsters. Again, the market is surprised. So when you have a very concentrated portfolio, you're more vulnerable to the inability to make those forecasts rather than having concentrated positions. Systematic investing has a focus on breadth, lots of lots of differentiated and diversified positions that aren't reliant on one big macro theme. That helps a systematic investment process sort of work through the, the big macro issues and take away a focus in the portfolio from betting on direction to instead extracting returns from dispersion, from differences. And these kinds of environments and these kinds of events are actually helpful for boosting the amount of dispersion. And it's very supportive to that type of investment approach.
0: Jeffrey Rosenberg, thank you so much. Interesting treaties there, folks, on where the bond market is amid the jobs report, amid the uh, elections. This is a joy. She's been with us almost daily, we expect, I think we may hire her for team surveillance as well. Wendy Schiller with us, out of scenic Providence at Brown University, and we're thrilled she could join us uh, this morning. Wendy, I'm going to do this to you, I'm going to give you an open question. What did you think of the president's speech last night?
5: I thought it was the most destructive speech to the democracy I've heard him make since he ran for president. Uh, I think sometimes Trump gets a raw deal. Sometimes he points out things that are true, and then that gets all distorted. But in this case, there was absolutely no truth to what he was saying. And what I'm worried about are people on the ground counting the votes. These are people like you and me. They are just doing their civic duty. They're in, you know, Maricopa, Arizona. They get out at one in the morning. There's a bunch of people outside in the parking lot taking pictures of their cars and their license plates. I mean, this is just incredibly frightening. You know, people could get hurt with the what the words of the president in the white. White House briefing room with the presidential seal you know I if he wants to sue he can sue George W. Bush sued and it worked for him that's the American way our, you know we're very litigious society but I thought it was such a, an affront to just this sort of soul of the democracy. And I I just couldn't believe, and I didn't think he was worthy. He could win Arizona. You know, Pennsylvania is not over yet. He's still in the lead. You know, yeah, Georgia flipped, but it's only barely a thousand votes. I mean, there are lots of ways this election could still go, theoretically. We'll see what happens with Pennsylvania today. Uh, But I don't think he did himself any favors. And I don't think he did the Republican party any favors.
2: Professor Schiller, what is the historical precedent for this type of rhetoric and the oversight of poll workers who are just diligently trying to count the checked boxes?
5: Well, I mean, th- this is a really fascinating take a lot longer than what we have. But I mean, yes, there has been a lot of this rhetoric in the past. Certainly in the late 19th century, parties were gearing up as mass organizations. They were incredibly vitriolic. They owned newspapers. They were spreading all sorts of information with no check. There have been periods of time in the past where this has been very similar in American politics. So we have had this kind of dispute. But, you know, it started really with the civil rights movement and thinking about making sure that African American voters could vote, particularly. In the South and thinking about how do you watch for violations or rejections or turning people away from the polls. So it's relatively new to have this kind of observational activity in the polls. It's not, you know, more than 60 years old at best. So we're still, you know, new at it, but by all counts, the Republican governor of Georgia and the Republican Secretary of State of Georgia has had this practice, the Republicans and Democrats. But the bigger point is it's gonna take a little heavy lifting by people who maybe are on the sidelines. Maybe you support the Republican Party, fine, good for you. But when you attack the actual integrity of the voting process, which gave Republicans victories in the Senate and victories in the House and victories in state legislatures, then you're attacking the all, democracy. So you have to step up and say, listen, maybe you lost the election. Uh, but it's got to really, really, um, you know, really bother President Trump if he loses. But all of the Republicans that he believe he's carried over the last four years keep their seats. Wendy, there's also a question
2: of all of those Republicans that keep their seats. How do they respond to the Republican Party post-Trump? The idea that if he is uh, confirmed to have lost this presidential election, what does the Republican Party look like in the next two, four, ten years?
5: Well, if, I, if I'm the Republican Party, I did great in this election. And I did great because probably I represented a more, quote, unquote, stable alternative to a lot of what the Democratic Party or symbolically the Democratic Party was offering. So you just keep going. You just won. You know, you don't shift gears. The question is, how do you separate from President Trump if you can and if he loses? And uh, listen, you know, they're looking at 2022. Mitch McConnell wants to keep the Senate for 2022. You know, you had two people come out, Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham, probably trying to run for president <clears throat> 2024. So you'll have two wings of the party, the wing of the party that wants to sort of be Trumpism and win and uh, be president in 2024 versus all the other ones who just won and frankly, maybe don't want the headache of dealing with Trump and defending Trump for the next two to four years.
0: Uh, Professor Schiller, we've got to dazzle you right now so you keep coming back. In 1855, Mr. Seward walked out of the Whig Party and killed it. He went over to a nascent Republican Party and, of course, served uh, with President Lincoln. How close are the Republicans to an 1855
5: Uh, They're not doing that. I mean, I think McConnell's tweet, you know, today, this morning, I believe. Exactly. Very middle of the road, right? He's not walking away from Trump, but he's not walking towards Trump either. I mean, really, if you're them, isn't it better to have Biden in the White House when you're running again in 2022 and you want to solidify the Republican gains this time around? You don't want the same party president because midterms are bad for the party of the president. So in every politically strategic way, it's better for the Democrat uh, of the Republicans. I'm sorry. In Congress, who just won reelection. To have Joe Biden in rather than Trump because they can block every major thing he wants to do. So there's not going to be a lot of legislative change. It's almost an ideal situation for Mitch McConnell to have Trump lose and Biden win barely. So I think, but, but there's millions and millions of people who voted for Trump who will be devastated and may or may not accept this election result. What do the Republicans do then if we get into a situation where there's unrest? The same question, you know, goes to the Democrats. So Tom, you are asking, you know, this perfect question. You know, will we see Mitt Romney rise up? sort of disavow the president. Well, you know, we'll see. Uh, But I think that, you know, they win, I think, in a lot of ways, if he loses, and that's got to frustrate them.
0: Professor, we got a headline out. You know, the next headline we're going to get is they're going to find a thousand votes at El Forno, best pizza in Providence (laughs) at Rhode Island. The U.S. postal system says, according to Politico, they found a thousand ballots in Philadelphia. That's all I got, Professor Schiller. Isn't that true? Most elections is like ballots get lost.
5: Yeah, I mean, that's true. And there's also a lot of ballots that get rejected. Great point. Um, thousands of ballots get rejected every every election that we go through. Uh, but listen, here's what you want to watch, I think. I'm watching Erie. I'm watching Erie, Pennsylvania. Because you've got some mail-in ballots coming in from Erie. That's sort of neck and neck. President's well, really ahead. He went to Erie a lot. You
0: know, Professor, we've went- we got to interrupt here. Lisa, bring in that important news while yeah, I do the math. Well,
2: we're just hearing that uh, Joe Biden has taken the lead in Pennsylvania uh, as the count continues. This according to CNN and MSNBC. NBC. We knew uh, that there was, I believe, an 18,000 vote gap. It does appear, based on CNN and MSNBC, that they have uh, superseded that gap and that uh, former Vice President Joe Biden has taken the lead. There is a question, Professor Schiller: How narrow is too narrow for some of these leads to hold water, especially when we talk about the uh, social aspect? When you talk about some of the rhetoric of, uh, of President Trump, is there a delta? that is big enough to sort of uh, absolutely cast aside any doubts about the vict- uh, about the verdict of this election.
5: Uh, it's a fantastic question. Really quickly, Pennsylvania, what you want to look for, as I said, is Western Pennsylvania is coming in now as well as Philadelphia. If, in fact, some of those counties flip or they actually provide a lot more ballots for Joe Biden, that actually helps mitigate the sort of attack on Philadelphia. So look for the distribution regionally in, in Pennsylvania to see how Biden accrues more votes. If it's distributed, then I think that mitigates a little bit. And if Biden, big if, if Biden's lead holds in Georgia and he wins four states, to control by Republican governors. I think that's going to go a long way to sort of getting this sort of settled in the American public's mind. So that's the really next big step uh, to dissuading people that this was stolen by Philadelphia, because if Biden doesn't need Pennsylvania in the end, I think that takes a lot of air out of the tires of the Trump argument at the moment. Professor Schiller,
0: thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. Wendy Schiller, just love having her on, uh, complete ownership of our American uh, history. Let's switch to Julia Coronado and talk about something light here. Julia Coronado, (laughs) macro policy perspective. Julia, do you know who Mookie Betts is?
6: Really, a baseball
0: tough. player. <laughs> there we go. That's why we booked her, Julia Coronado. Thank you so much for being with us today. Mookie oh, Betts is an economist. He was. Uh, I saw him at <laughs> AEA looking for a job uh, down in Dallas or Austin.
2: Talking of which, the point. jobs report. <laughs> the jobs
0: report, Julia. How do you get to an under seven percent jobs handle with what Lisa and I see out in the streets?
6: well so this is one of those reports where the um the payroll survey and the household survey gave us different messages so the payroll survey says that you know jobs growth is continuing it said you know it's kind of settled into a, a slower pace than earlier in the summer um meanwhile the job creation in the household survey that underpins the unemployment rate was almost four times the payroll number so Um, We want to take that with a grain of salt. I think we know the direction of travel here um, and that is that the labor market has been resilient uh, to the loss of fiscal support, but we are seeing a loss of momentum relative to the pace of that we saw when we were reopening the economy. Now we're kind of settling into this recovery dynamic. And You know, that's where the pace going forward is more up in the air. Are we going to see a faster recovery or a slower recovery? That depends on both, number one, the pandemic and the public health response to the pandemic and our ability to control it in 2021, and then, two, the amount of fiscal support that we get for small businesses and the people that are still unemployed.
2: Julia, I got a couple of messages this morning saying, Okay, you're an angry bear. You're a perma bear. You tend to be pessimistic. (laughs) What's the negativity in this report? So can you answer that? Is this an unambiguously amazingly good jobs report versus expectations? Or is this sort of a, a sort of headline number that looks good? If you look underneath, it's a little bit
6: rougher. Solid report. Um, I think, like if, again, if we look at the jobs number, it, it's in line with expectations. And again, if you're looking for the gray lining, it's that this we've we've lost the reopening momentum uh, that we had seen in earlier months, and we've only regained just over half of the jobs we lost in March and April. So that's still a deep hole we're in, and the pace at which we're climbing out of this hole has slowed. So there's your there's your bearish interpretation. Thank you. It's not it's not absolutely bearish, it's a relatively bearish yeah. story. We want to we want to bring people back as fast as possible. Now, you look at an industry like leisure and hospitality, they simply can't go back to normal right now because we still are in a pandemic and that's going to be a headwind going forward.
0: We done with the gloom? <laughs>
6: <laughs> now, do we want to talk about baseball again no 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 if you're talking red sox that's it's even gloom. worse than gloom
0: um <laughs> I,
6: gloomy yes.
0: yeah i have to be medicated when we talk about the red sox
3: <laughs> julia i
0: do want to talk about the gloom that i heard from chairman powell yesterday which frankly folks you know all kidding aside links into lisa's correct view of two americas and boy did he make clear loan demand from banks isn't there Inform our audience worldwide, what does it mean when we say loan demand is just not there?
6: Well, I think that reflects that the recovery momentum is very much in question, right? It's Who is going to take out a loan and borrow in the current environment? Um, You know, households that are doing relatively well are, you know, buying homes. And we've seen a lot of catch up there. But broadly speaking, we're going to see a lot of caution as long as the uncertainty is very high. Um, it could be that now with the big uncertainty of the election starting to move, maybe, maybe into the rearview mirror, uh, that will resolve one source of uncertainty. But the biggest one is the pandemic uh, and its you know persistence and staying power and how long it's going to disrupt our lives. So if that's going to keep, I think, a lot of businesses and consumers airing on yeah. the side of caution.
0: If you're just joining us on Bloomberg Radio, Julia Coronado with us with Macro Policy uh, Perspectives. Right on the screen, Dow down 137. It's just a quiet down, 28,251. On the Dow, SPX down 17 points. The VIX is flat. The VIX was hmm. 40, like, three glooms ago from Lisa. <laughs> and it's come in with a vengeance. And it's like... It's like Michael Holland Nirvana 27.62, so that's a good market this week. I should point out oil down a dollar 37.88 on West Texas Intermediate.
2: Lisa and Tom, I will just say a gloom is a measure of about 38 seconds um, in intervals. So it's like an it
0: Avogadro number yeah. in <laughs> physics. <laughs>
2: indeed, you know, something something like that. Where, where's
0: the deficit? It's like, well, you know, 4.2 times 10 to the 8 glooms.
2: Oh, dear Lord. People are like, what are we listening to? Okay, Julia, let's get back on track here with respect to the labor market and what's going on with the pandemic. There is this assumption that as the pandemic does worsen, we're seeing record numbers of cases, particularly in the Midwest. You're going to see things slow down, but the Fed will be able to pump enough money into the system to keep things going for long enough before we get a vaccine. And that was definitely the tone out of Chair Jay Powell yesterday. Do you think mm-hmm. that their quantitative easing is actually doing anything to help the actual economy?
6: Oh, for sure. There is a positive transmission. It's not very efficient, but it is, one, it short-circuited a uh, pandemic and recession from becoming a financial crisis. So early on, that was extremely helpful. That kept businesses on track. That kept credit flowing. And where we've seen the most direct transmission is in the housing sector, where we've seen a robust recovery in demand, also in autos, Uh, and so that is facilitated by low rates and the restoration of the flow of credit. Now that said, um, you still have a very broad base of pain in the consumer sector, pain and uncertainty, and the Fed's tools don't really get to that. And I mean, Chair Powell has been explicit begging for fiscal policy support. Uh, And unfortunately, that's where um, that looks more uh, less likely than it did with a divided government now in prospect. Uh, And so, yes, the Fed will do more, but we are going to probably maintain this disconnect between markets and the broader economy with, you know, a slower labor market recovery, and yet the markets may feel fine, because companies and um, markets are going to still benefit from the Fed's aggressive
0: policy. Julia, thank you so much. Julia Coronado, Macro Policy Perspectives. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.